like to now, uh, we're now going to take a regulatory deep dive and do a spotlight on when regulation works against financial inclusion. And I'm pleased to welcome my colleague, uh, Diego Zuluaga. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I have some slides which hopefully will come on momentarily. Um, but I'm going to be, oh, right. Oh, great. It was, it was all up to me. So it's my fault. I'm going to be talking to you about the Community Reinvestment Act, uh, which, as you heard earlier, is, of course, in flux. It's under review, and the regulations that implement the act are likely to change in a significant way over the next few uh, months and years. And I'm actually uh, applauding the uh, leadership here of particularly the Office of the Controller of the Currency, and I know Barry has been very active in this, uh, but also the FDIC and the Federal Reserve, who are the other primary regulators involved in the Community Reinvestment Act. Uh, you may be struck somewhat by the title of my talk, because the explicit purpose of the CRA is financial inclusion. Since 1977, the CRA has attempted to bring credit and other financial services to underserved communities and underserved borrowers. Uh, now, the banking landscape since 1977 has changed a very great deal uh, in very many fundamental ways. And my research and the research conducted by others uh, suggests that some of the uh, purposes of the CRA may no longer be best served by the way the CRA is currently implemented. And what I'm going to be doing in my talk today is present to you some of my empirical findings in the DC area as to where CRA uh, lending is actually going, and to also outline what some of the trends are that have made the CRA less effective at achieving its purposes than perhaps it was in the late 1970s. And the hope of this is not to diss the CRA or to accuse the regulators of being ineffective or to accuse the banks of not doing what they're supposed to do under regulation, but rather is to suggest an alternative framework by which perhaps other pieces of financial regulation or the CRA itself can be better used to promote the goals of bringing credit to underserved borrowers in a sustainable and safe and sound way. One couldn't talk about the CRA without talking about redlining. Redlining is a long-standing and quite tragic uh, phenomenon in US financial markets, and it refers to the uh, practice by which uh, financial institutions and indeed financial regulators uh, would encourage or you know, discourage credit in areas that were primarily uh, inhabited by minorities and low-income consumers. Uh, the map you see here is a map of Baltimore from 1938. It was published by the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which was a New Deal entity to refinance home mortgages at the time of the Great Crash and afterwards during the Great Depression. And what it shows are the designated areas uh, that were uh, considered suitable for credit, those would be the blue and the green ones, versus the ones that were, where credit was discouraged because they were considered risky. You won't be surprised to find that in the 1930s, the areas that were considered risky were primarily immigrant areas, minority areas, and low-income areas. If this had been limited to the Homeowners Loan Corporation at the time, the impact of redlining would perhaps have been less long-standing. But unfortunately, the mixture of the competitive landscape in banking at the time and the appropriation by these kinds of guidelines by the uh, Federal Housing Administration afterward uh, made it so that the financial system adopted these as a way to allocate credit in a way that was, for a very long time, detrimental to minorities and low-income communities. And we still see the effects today. There's a tenfold, if not 15-fold, difference in the net worth 
of white Americans versus African-American, Hispanic, and other minority Americans. Um, some studies suggest that in the DC area, where these effects are particularly pronounced, the differential may be more like 80-fold. That's the median white household has a net worth 80 times that of the median minority household. The effects of redlining are still felt and are still real. And there is, I think, a role for public policy and innovation and markets uh, to address that. Uh, because otherwise, it is very difficult to achieve the kind of equity of opportunity that a lot of public policy seeks to uh, promote. Now, with that in mind, in 1977, to address redlining, the CRA was enacted. And the primary purpose of the CRA is encapsulated by this. To encourage financial institutions to help meet the credit needs of the local communities in which they are chartered, consistent with the safe and sound operation of those institutions. To understand why the CRA was considered necessary in 1977, we must go back to the banking landscape then. We had largely unit banking, very few, very few bank branches. Uh, typically, banks were local monopolies. It was difficult to charter a bank unless you could prove there was a need for additional financial services. And that made it so that financial institutions didn't necessarily lose business if they refused credit to certain groups. That's what happens when you have a monopoly, is that the monopolist can restrict the amount of credit while increasing profit if they're able to raise uh, interest rates enough. That was the landscape then. In addition, banks were the primary providers of home mortgage and small business credit, as well as other forms of consumer credit. And that made it so that even competition from outside wasn't really in existence. Now, of course, it doesn't take much thinking to realize that that environment is not representative of 2019. Since the 1980s, we've had a massive expansion of bank branching, first with liberalization of branching laws at the state level, and finally in 1994 with the Regal Neal Act that made interstate branching uh, federally legal. In addition to that, we've had the rise of financial technology companies, about which we heard earlier, which are branchless and uh, extend credit to borrowers across the country, uh, often online uh, and in other ways. Uh, all of this means that the, both the targeted institutions by the CRA and the practices targeted by the CRA uh, are less uh, prevalent today. And so the ways in which the CRA is now implemented uh, probably don't achieve the same goal, the, the, the goals uh, sought in, in the way that, you know, was intended at the time. Now, let me show you how CRA commitments have changed over time, because the timeline shows something interesting. Remember that the CRA was first implemented in 1977. Until 1995 or so, the commitments that banks made under the Community Reinvestment Act were relatively small. And then suddenly we have a jump after 1995. Two things happened in 1995. We had a change in regulation that moved to focus on the outcomes of lending, that is, how much banks actually lent to underserved communities, low and moderate income communities, about which I'll say more in a moment. Um, and the second was the start of the Regal Neal Act's implementation, which, as I say, was passed in 1994, and that ushered in a tremendous amount of bank consolidation since. To give you an idea, in 1984, we had 14,000 separate banking institutions, banking, uh, bank holding companies or individual banks. And we had about 50, 57,000 bank branches. Fast forward to 2019, and we have something like 5,000, just under 5,000 
banks, if you include thrifts, probably 5,300 or so, and 79,000 branches. So the decline in the number of banks hasn't actually led to a decline in the number of bank offices. But what it has done is increase massively the incentives for banks to make commitments under the CRA. Why so? Because regulators, again, the OCC, FDIC, and the Fed, take CRA performance into account when authorizing whether a bank can expand its facilities, can merge with another bank, and so on. CRA valuations are also public, so there's a great deal of public pressure when banks are seen to under perform. Now that explains the rise. You will have heard in some accounts of the financial crisis that the CRA was responsible for some of what happened then. I, my own personal uh, opinion and evaluation from my research is that the CRA played a relatively minor role. First of all, because CRA commitments are small as a share of overall lending, uh, but then secondly, because uh, a lot of the bad practices during the financial crisis were done by entities that are not subject to the CRA, such as independent mortgage companies, and a lot of the lending was subprime, which is not traditionally CRA lending. Now that means that the CRA wasn't responsible for the crisis. It doesn't mean that the CRA is effective, or indeed that it is on the whole good, and especially as currently implemented. Let's go again to the mandate of the CRA, which is to encourage institutions to meet the credit needs of communities consistent with safety and soundness. There are two pieces to this argument, right? One is the extent to which the credit needs of communities are actually being met. And the second piece is whether those practices are in fact resulting in safe and sound outcomes on bank balance sheets. Because what CRA drafters didn't intend, what CRA regulators certainly guard against, is lending that would compromise the safety and soundness of institutions. Now there have been some studies looking at safety and soundness relating to the CRA. A 2012 National Bureau of Economic Research paper found that around the periods of evaluation of uh, CRA institutions, those institutions would tend to increase their lending and that, and that lending was about 15% more likely to default. That's just one paper, but they are robust findings from a quasi-experimental setting. So, you know, it's, and it's published by the NBER, which is a mark of uh, research quality. Another paper by Jeffrey Gunther um, suggests that CAMEL ratings, the ratings for safety and soundness given by the FDIC, are inversely correlated with CRA performance. But a lot of other evidence doesn't suggest that the CRA compromises safety and soundness. And that has puzzled me for some time because as someone with an economics background, you would think that in a competitive market, banks will be lending up to the profitable degree because excluding people, excluding communities that would, you could lend to on a safe and sound basis uh, would not be economically attractive and competition would take that business away from you over time. So that any regulatorily encouraged lending has to somehow take away from safety and soundness because otherwise CRA subject institutions would engage in it. I think that is the perfectly competitive outcome. Of course, there are barriers to competition, barriers to entry, which Chairman McWilliams referred to uh, earlier, but that doesn't detra detract from that. So let's look at the other piece of the CRA. The other piece of the CRA is whether the credit needs of communities are actually being met. And here is where the evidence that doesn't point to an impact on safety and soundness actually becomes relevant. Because you will have seen anecdotal reports of 
gentrifying communities, finding that a lot of credit goes to the new residents and not to the historic residents. And you will also, if you work on CRA issues, will have seen that a lot of the evidence on CRA doesn't suggest it's riskier. There was a paper by, by Neil Buta from the Federal Reserve, which looked at CRA lending within banks assessment areas and found that the median credit score for a borrower in those areas was much higher than the median credit score for borrowers in other areas. And that piqued my interest because that suggests that CRA lending or lending that is that gives institutions CRA credit is actually uh, focused on higher quality borrowers. And the research question then becomes, is the phenomenon of skimming the top? Is CRA lending going to higher quality borrowers who are not the borrowers that actually were intended by the legislation? And for that, we must uh, get into how the CRA actually works. Let's divide borrowers into four buckets. There are low-income borrowers living in low-income areas, low-income borrowers living in higher-income areas, low-income borrowers living in, sorry, high-income borrowers living in low-income areas, and then high-income borrowers living in high-income areas. The yellow boxes are the types of lending that qualify a depository institution for CRA credit. And the question is, how much is each of those three buckets getting out of the CRA eligible lending? And if the hypothesis works, the hypothesis that higher income people living in low income areas are getting most of the CRA credit, I call them quote unquote the gentrifiers, um, then we have a phenomenon by which even though CRA lending is meeting the letter of the law, it isn't necessarily meeting the spirit of the law because the spirit of the law is to get lending to underserved communities. And it's difficult to argue that higher income new residents, even if they live in low income areas, are actually underserved by the system. And so what I've done is I've looked at this phenomenon in the DC area. The District of Columbia has 179 census tracts, of which 87, so just under half, qualify for the CRA. To qualify for the CRA, to be a low-income borrower, low and moderate income is the regulatory designation, you have to be under 80% of the median income of the metropolitan area where you live, or you have to live in an area where the median income of that area is under 80%. That's why some higher income people qualify, the lending to them qualifies for CRA credit. So one of the things that comes out, if you look at the period 2000 to 2017 in the DC area, is that median income has increased sharply in a lot of downtown DC. I'm focusing here of the down, on the downtown areas which include DuPont Circle, Adams Morgan, Columbia Heights, Pedworth, as well as downtown, Capitol Hill, uh, and elsewhere. Uh, that's where a lot of the gentrification in the last 15 to 20 years has happened. And the blue indicates that income has increased by at least 30% since 2000. That's a very rapid increase. Gentrification in the DC area has been very quick. And so the hypothesis is how much of recent lending that would qualify institutions for the CRA, for CRA credit, is going to the new arrivals, the gentrifiers, the higher income people. And the answer, as far as I can tell, is 66%. This finding comes from uh, lending data from the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act, which is a regulation that requires institutions to report loan level data, including income, background, uh, credit score, and various other features uh, of the applicant as part of their mortgage origination process. And in the DC area, it looks like of the lending that qualifies for CRA credit, 66% 
of that volume is lending to higher income borrowers living in low income areas. I should say that more than half of mortgage lending in the DC area goes to people who wouldn't qualify for CRA credit at all, right? More than half of that. These are the high income people living in high income areas. But of the remaining lending, the one that gets institution CRA credit, 66% is going to, quote unquote, the gentrifiers. It might be tempting to either blame inefficient regulation or to blame CRA-regulated institutions for this outcome. In fact, regulators have a very difficult job in implementing the CRA. And financial institutions are only acting according to what they're mandated to do under the CRA and in the interest of their shareholders and also according to other regulation because let's remember that financial regulation tries to promote safety and soundness and uh, systemic stability as well as financial inclusion. And sometimes those goals clash. So I don't think there's any active wrongdoing here. It's that if you are trying to implement a piece of legislation that tries, tries to bring sustainable credit to low-income communities, you are going to end up with a situation like this. Because safety and soundness is easier to achieve if you focus the lending on the higher quality borrowers. And indeed, if you read a CRA report that any of the three regulators I mentioned publish when they examine a bank, they will usually talk about serving geographic areas, and they focus very deeply into this. You know, they're trying to uh, serve the purpose of the law. But whenever you find that low-income uh, lending is significantly lower than the rest, you are want to blame demand. And that's what happens in the DC area. House prices are high, incomes are relatively low among the people uh, who qualify for low-income status. And so you don't blame it on a failure of the CRA. You blame it on the fact that demand is being bid up by people on higher incomes. So it's very difficult to target the CRA in such a way as not to have an outcome where 66% of lending goes to higher income people. Uh, I've only looked at DC area um, data, but even when Robert Litton examined the CRA 20 years ago after the Financial Modernization Act, he found that up to 30% nationwide of CRA eligible lending was going to higher income borrowers in low income areas. So this is not an isolated phenomenon. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence. There are, there's a report about Point Breeze in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, finding uh, a similar situation. There was a recent article in the New York Times showing that uh, CRA lending might be reaching new arrivals uh, and, and different demographic groups than the ones intended um, more recently. And uh, it's something that we have to study uh, if we're trying to improve the way the CRA works. There are two ways in which I think you, we can better achieve the goals of the CRA of bringing credit to underserved communities, uh, which would do so better than the current CRA regulation. The first one is to focus on the regulations that actually prevent discrimination. Look at ICOA, look at HAMDA. Those are the ones that prevent discrimination against individual people who have uh, who are underserved because of their own personal circumstances. The CRA looks at areas as a whole and therefore is less targeted than that. Perhaps we want to rely more on those in the future if we're trying to promote low-income lending that's also sustainable. The second piece, and I think this is more in the way of CRA reform, because I think there is an argument for saying that the CRA's time has passed. But if we want CRA reform, I would say move to a system of tradable CRA obligations. What that means is if you're a bank um, who has CRA obligations, you can pay an institution which is specialized in serving low and moderate income areas for fulfilling those obligations on your behalf. That gets us to two things. First of all, you get to people who have knowledge of the market, knowledge of the local market, community development, financial institutions, perhaps fintechs, which are serving more and more LMI borrowers. But secondly, 
you are getting to institutions that have a mission or a specific uh, task of promoting lending to low-income people on a sustainable basis. You are not tasking institutions that have to juggle these objectives of safety and soundness and diverse lending and loan diversification, which is very important, and various other uh, objectives with a relatively vague mission of serving underserved communities. How do you define communities? How do you define incomes? How do you deal with dynamic outcomes? How do you measure median incomes in the context of a place like DC where economic circumstances are changing so rapidly? This is why I think the CRA is ripe for reform, if not perhaps even entire reconsideration, um, but definitely reform. And, I, and I'm certainly very glad to see that the regulators are working too update CRA regulations in this way, and I hope they will look at this phenomenon of CRA lending going to people that it wasn't intended for as they pursue this reform agenda. And with that, I will uh, take uh, some questions for the, for the remainder of the time that we have. Thank you.